conclude our study in Acts chapter 16 today, beginning in verse 16. Find this on page 925 of the the Bibles provided for you in the pew rack. Acts 16, and beginning in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to that spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, He took them the same hour that night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, and he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. As far, God's holy word to us this morning. 
It's a wonderful thing to know that, that God is in the business of setting captives free. This is what Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah, and this is what Jesus fulfilled. We read this in Isaiah 61, that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus Christ came into the world to set at liberty those bound to the cruel slave master known as Satan and sin. And still today, all who believe on the message that he proclaimed can find that very same freedom. And that's powerfully portrayed in our text in that there is not one and not even two, but three instances of God rescuing and releasing those in bondage. The first is a slave girl who is released from demonic possession. Recall from last week that Paul and Silas, also Timothy and Luke with them, they've arrived in Philippi. We can ask uh, Perry and Jennifer, not that they're back, what that's like over there. Uh, But they've arrived now to do the first um, uh, public ministry in Europe. And recall there that Uh, They did not find a synagogue of of people gathering to worship God. Rather, they found a women's prayer meeting, and there they encountered Lydia. And it it says in the text that her heart was open to the message of the gospel, and she believed and was baptized along with her household, and then hosted Paul and his company for some time. And so now, verse 16, we're opening on Paul and the others returning to that same prayer meeting. Um, And they're sort of accosted along the way by this, we're told in verse 16, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The Greek actually tells us the spirit in particular belonged to this Greek god known as uh, Pythos, um, uh, envisioned and and drawn up like a serpent. It was believed that this uh, Greek god could uh, tell the future. And so this slave girl, for her owners, they got more than they bargained for out of her. Uh, Here was someone who could do more than household chores but could make some money uh, with this little side hustle of theirs where she would claim to tell the future and uh, people would clearly pay to have their fortunes told them. Now, obviously, I hope it's obvious, since there's only one true and living God, boys and girls, that's in our catechism near the front, since there's only one true and living God, uh, the slave girl does does not actually possess the powers of some uh, Greek or Roman future-seeing deity. But she is, in fact, possessed by a demonic spirit. And unlike the Roman and, uh, Roman and Greek gods, demons are real. What's interesting, though, is that this demonic spirit compels her to announce around the missionaries, uh, verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Uh, She keeps doing this. Paul gets annoyed, and eventually he snaps at her and tells the demon within her to be silent. Now, that's curious. Why not take the free advertising, right? Um, She's, it seems like she's not saying anything that's not true, and she's kind of walking along as as a sort of a hype person for, for Paul and his team. Why does he tell her to be silent? Well, in this way, he's following exactly in the footsteps of of his savior jesus christ who invariably when the demons would announce something about him would silence them as as demons would say this is the son of the the most high god he never said amen preach it brother never 
even if what they said was formally true. Rather, he would tell them to be silent. And this is because Christ is much more interested in making disciples than in getting demons to be part of his entourage. Paul, like his Savior, is interested in the same thing. So while being possessed by this power, the slave girl is not helping them. She's actually a distraction to their ministry, even if what she says seems to be true. On top of being distracting, though, I think more of the concern is that what she says is confusing. Uh, In the context there in, in Philippi, the most high God would not have been Yahweh. It would have been Zeus. And so what she says is that these men are servants of the most high God, and they proclaim to you, this way of salvation, meaning believing in Jesus Christ, that could have been interpreted that, that Jesus is really just a servant of Zeus and, and he's just another one of the pantheon of deities that they had. So Paul silences this woman, but he does more than that. He does more than silence her. He saves her. He saves her from this demonic oppression. He commands that she be, be released. Notice the words in verse um, 18. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. So what's happening here is nothing different than what we read about in the gospel accounts, that when um, uh, poor people oppressed with demonic spirits are exorcised by Jesus, it's the word of his power that is able to make those demons uh, go running, and that's the same power at work here. Paul isn't saying that he has any power within himself. He's, He's invoking the power, the name of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus must... Again, show up in a powerful way, and it's through his word that the demons will be sent packing. And that's what happens. And so, so much for the first rescue and release of our chapter, this uh, young girl released from demonic oppression. But that miracle of release and liberty actually sets into motion. It's the catalyst for the next significant confinement in our story which is Paul and Silas being put in prison. What happens? The masters of this slave girl aren't too happy uh, that these men have interrupted uh, their, uh, their money-making scheme. Uh, they are dismayed at her return to sanity. They do not care for this girl at all. They just care about making money. And so they want revenge. And so they bring Paul and Silas before the Roman magistrates Uh, over their province at Philippi, and they make up a story. I mean, they completely fabricate this story that Paul and Silas are advocating customs that clash with the Roman way of life. Now, under Roman law, Judaism was legal. It was permitted. It was permissible, as long as the Jews kind of kept to themselves. Here, these Philippians manipulate Paul and Silas's faith and their ministry as preachers They unnecessarily politicize it in order to get them thrown in jail. Look at verse 21 there with me. It says, They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Now here's what I found very interesting about this for you and me to consider today. Do you know one of the greatest criticisms about Christian missions in the world Uh, that people have is that rather than actually seeking the welfare of the people whom missionaries go to to spread the gospel, rather what what, what Christian missionaries are doing is unnecessarily um, westernizing people. Um, uh, Colonizing might be a term that would be used, that, that they're imposing a certain 
Western culture upon uh, an unwilling people group. But recognize this is the first time that the Christian message has actually come to what we know today as the West. And the people there in the West are saying that it threatened their way of life. That they were saying it was unnecessarily Easternizing them. And that means, friends, that Christianity, when properly understood, is always countercultural. If your view, your understanding of Christianity fits in perfectly with a particular political party or political system or a racial or ethnic cultural way of life, if it just, if it just kind of slides in perfectly, then you are probably missing something. Because Christianity is the religion of a people who belong to another world entirely. And so, we should all feel that there is a tension in our faith in the world in which we live in, no matter where we live. We should all feel that to some degree or another. After a strong beating, uh, the, the slave masters, their plan works, and Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. Verse 23. But if Jesus could easily deliver someone from the power of the devil, he could easily deliver someone from the power of a jailer, if he so wishes. And what's incredibly instructive for us to see is that for these two brothers, Paul and Silas, who understand the liberating reality of the gospel, remember it's Paul who says in Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, For these brothers who understand the liberating reality of the gospel, uh, knowing the ultimate freedom that they have before God, that transforms the way they view an imprisonment that otherwise would have been very demoralizing. I mean, isn't that one of the spectacular takeaways from this famous story? Is that they're not crying, they're not moaning, but they're singing praises to God as they're in prison. The attitude of Paul and Silas as they sit in a dungeon is so striking. We read, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This is a uniquely Christian response. Make no doubt about it. It is the Christian who is supernaturally tuned to sing. The Christian who, when misfortune comes, meets it with a melody. That when sorrow comes, answers it with a song. Um, We all know innately that there is something freeing about singing. That's why there's an entire genre, African-American spirituals, this entire genre that proves that even if you are shackled and whipped and beaten, No one can take your song, which is a way of saying nobody can take my soul. Now, a friend of mine who asked me not to share his name, and you'll see why in a moment, did send me this email the past week. I'll read from it now. He's recounting a story. He says, I remember a number of years ago when I started working with the underground house church in China. And we would go on training sites to prepare those lay pastors, and we always had to go late at night. And they were usually out in the countryside. One night we were out in the deepest darkness 
that I have ever experienced with a leader from that house church who knew where he was going, but after a while we wondered if that was actually true. But then, suddenly, we heard singing in the distance. And the closer we approached, the louder the singing. It was the brothers and sisters awaiting our arrival, singing homegrown songs of praise to the Lord. These were some of the words that they had crafted and were singing. Solid rock, solid rock, Jesus Christ. Beside you there is no other. There is no other name given under heaven. You are our only Savior. We belong to you, and we will never be shaken. And he said that when we got there, they were singing at the top of their lungs in such an amazing, victorious way that we, the missionaries, were emboldened and ignited, ready to begin our teaching of the Word of God over the next few days. And over those days, again and again, before our sessions, they would worship the Lord with these amazing songs. And to me, they were like powerful battle songs in the midst of their own adversity. The Christian knows, in a special way, the liberating power of song. Notice that the other prisoners, they're not singing. It's just Paul and Silas. They're not singing, but they are listening. Verse 25. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to them. They were learning from them. I wonder, have you ever thought what kind of a powerful, transformative testimony you could be by displaying uh, in front of the world a remarkable reaction to difficulty? Uh, the, the kind of witness you can have simply in the way in which you respond to trials or disappointments or discouragements. The one who will not allow cross or trial to grieve them is the one who knows in a personal and intimate way the God of salvation, the God who has delivered their soul from the depths of hell. And, and when you know about that kind of eternal deliverance that you have been graciously given uh, from God, that, then, then physical and temporal hang-ups, even lock-ups, well, they won't be so damaging. And so here's a question for you. Are you a complainer? Or are you a praiser? What is your reaction when trial comes? I think it's interesting that years later, when Paul would pen a, a letter to the Christian church in Philippi that's planted here in Acts chapter 16, he would tell believers this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul, you, you might remember, wrote those words from another prison. Philippians is written from a jail cell. And some of the people who read those words the first time might have remembered that bizarre hymn sing on the night of the earthquake coming from the jailhouse. In other words, Paul wasn't sharing empty platitudes. He lived this message of joy in the Lord. Do you? One of the ways you can tell if you do is the answer to this question. Is your freedom more important than someone else's? Now, why do I ask that question? Is your freedom more important than someone else's? Where do we see that in the text? Well, I think we see it in verse 28. God sent an earthquake. 
to rescue Paul and Silas, uh, something that physically and powerfully demonstrates the, the rescue they've had from sin and the fact that the gospel cannot be bound. And that earthquake loosens their shackles, and, and there they are with the door to the outside world wide open. When the jailer sees this, he's ready to commit suicide because he knows if he loses prisoners under his charge, he will face the consequences of uh, humiliating public execution. He doesn't want that. And just as the sword is about to be driven through his chest, he hears Paul cry out, Wait, stop! Don't do that! We're, we're all still here. Amazing. What's going on here? Why didn't Paul and Silas split? Why are they still there? And I want to suggest to you, it is because of the liberation, the the liberating power of the gospel. Since Paul was already free in Christ, his circumstance hadn't changed between having the shackles on, being in the stocks, and, and having the shackles off, and being out of the stocks. He was just as free as he had ever been. And since he knew his eternity was secured, his freedom wasn't as important as that prisoner who's about to take his life, or the, the, the jailer who's about to take his own life. Paul's freedom is not as important as that man's faith. Paul doesn't want to stroll down the streets of Philippi a free man if it would mean that this jailer might not stroll into the gates of heaven one day as a saved and redeemed sinner. So what does that mean? It means he, he gives up this opportunity to be set free and he remains, as it were, in prison for the sake of this man. Paul's freedom was not as important to him as that man's freedom. And Christians get this, or at least maybe intellectually we get it. We know Jesus teaches about this. We, we understand that we are eager, or we should be eager, to be servants of all. Mark nine thirty five. Jesus said, and, and that's what Paul did. He Writes about it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free of, from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Friends, you are, if you're a Christian today, I want you to know you are a slave to no one. But that, that reality enables you to be a servant to everyone. Martin Luther helps us here. He said the Christian man justified by faith is free from bondage to sin and the law and a need to earn his salvation by his own work. But, listen, pay attention to this, but he uses his freedom to serve God with a grateful heart and he even surrenders his freedom to live a life of love in the service of his neighbor as exemplified by Jesus. That's what Paul and Silas do. And look at the result. What is the result of of their kind of self-renouncing, self-denying service It's the salvation of this jailer. And here's our third rescue story, right? We've seen a slave girl released from demonic possession. Two preachers are released from prison. And now finally, this jailer set free from sin. Now, whether or not the jailer could have attributed that earthquake to the work of God, we we don't know. But certainly, Paul and Silas's kindness in not running away... In sparing him his life, he definitely attributed that to their faith, and that's why he asked them this question. Verse uh, 30, verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The most important question anybody could ever ask. And there is such sweetness in the simplicity of the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you will be saved. And we noted the other week, maybe you remember that I said, if you ever start a sentence, you cannot be saved unless, and you do not finish that sentence with anything other than repent and believe, then you've added to the gospel. These brothers give a straight answer to this straight question. There is salvation in the simplicity of faith. What other prisoner could spring open their jail cell this easily? Think of what it would take for a convict to get from one side of the bars uh, to the other. Time served and uh, fines paid and lawyers appointed, maybe appeals and, and overturning of convictions. And if you find yourself wrongfully uh, detained in a less than friendly country like Russia, it might even involve um, recruiting the Secretary of State to negotiate a, a prisoner swap, as we've been seeing unfold in the news the past several months. It's not easy to get out of prison, yet no earthly prison compares with the prison house of sin. It is the worst prison, for it is the only eternal prison It's the worst prison, and yet at the same time, it is the easiest one to walk out of if you simply take hold of this key that is faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. And your jail cell can be opened up, and you're free forevermore. And so Paul and Silas, they make it so plain here for this brother, and they're making it plain for you today, for me today, to remember what do I need to do to be saved. You just need to believe. Do you get that today? Do you understand what it takes? Simple belief in a strong Savior. I wonder if you recall that uh, in, the, in the Old Covenant, God had instituted, as part of the Mosaic Law, three cities of refuge within the bounds of the Promised Land for which people who um, committed manslaughter, accidentally killed somebody, could flee to and find safety Uh, so that they wouldn't be uh, avenged by a relative of the person now deceased. They could run to this city, and they would be safe until um, a time for due process and so forth. Well, about a a thousand years ago, there there was uh, put together this um, Jewish uh, book, a rabbinical book called the Mishnah Torah, which kind of, um, it's like a commentary on the law of God in, in the Jewish world, and this is what we read about those cities of refuge. It says that the court is obligated to straighten the roads to the cities of refuge, to repair them, and to broaden them. They must remove all impediments and all obstacles. Bridges should be built over natural barriers so as not to delay one who is fleeing to these cities of refuge. The width of a road to a city of refuge should not be less than 32 cubits, and Refuge, refuge should be written at all crossroads so that the murderers can recognize the way they need to go and turn there immediately. What does that have to do with anything in Acts 16, right? Well, the answer is Charles Spurgeon. He makes the connection. Back in January 8th of 1860, he preached on verse 31 of our text. Only verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he titled that sermon, The King's Highway, or The King's Highway Opened. And this is the connection he made. Let me read a portion of it to you. He says, We're told by the rabbis that once in the year or more often, the magistrates of a district were accustomed to survey the high roads which led to these cities of refuge. They carefully gathered up the stones, took the greatest possible precautions that there should be no stumbling blocks 
in the way which might cause a poor fugitive to fall or might by any means impede him in his hasty course. Now, my brothers and sisters, God has prepared for the sons of men a city of refuge, and the way to it is faith in Christ Jesus. It is needful, however, that very often ministers of Christ should survey that road, lest there be any stumbling blocks in the path of a poor sinner. So, permit me, in the strength in the name of God, to remove this stumbling block out of your way. Sinner, I tell thee that all thy sins, be they never so many, cannot destroy thee if thou dost believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If now thou castest thyself simply on the merits of Jesus, though thy sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Only believe, dare to believe that Christ is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Take him at his word and trust him. And thou hast a warrant for doing it. For remember that it is written, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So now, right now, just as thou art, cast thyself on Christ. I tell thee more, if thy sins were 10,000 times as many as they be, yet the blood of Christ is able to atone for them all. Dare to believe it. Dare to believe it today, friends. This is the answer Paul and Silas give the jailer. Believe it, and you're free. You found refuge. Now, we want to consider that briefly the remainder of what Paul and Silas say there. We don't want to misinterpret. He says, you'll be saved, you and your household, you and your, your family. Now, the, same, the family is not saved because of the jailer's belief. Just like boys and girls, this is very important to know. You cannot be saved just because your parents believe. We all need to believe personally to be saved. But what's being said and what's being acted out in this household baptism is that salvation, salvation has come to this house. God is disposed in a saving manner towards this house because of the head of the household's faith. Now the entire household has entered into a covenant with God. But Just because they're brought into God's community doesn't mean they're brought into heaven. Only personal faith gets you there. And so his belief does not guarantee theirs. But James Boyce, I think, is right to point out that if it happened that that whole family would be converted in this instance, it's probably what we should expect under comparable conditions. It's what we see frequently, that when God calls one member of a family, it is often the means by which he draws others into the gospel net. And so we have verse 34. The jailer brings them to the house and sets food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That would be a great place to end the story, and yet Luke adds this final detail, and we've got to look at it just for a moment, and that's Paul's reaction to the Roman magistrates for how they mistreated him. Uh, why does Paul do this? He insists that they acknowledge their mistake in, in unduly detaining him, unjustly detaining him because he's a Roman citizen, it, wouldn't it be the greater part of Christian charity just to kind of you know, sweep that under the rug and, and kind of forget that? Why does he do this? Well, I believe it's on account of the reason they had been imprisoned in the first place. Remember, the slave girls' masters had said it was about their ministry that they were these religious freaks who were a disturbance to society. But far from it. Paul is saying, no, I want you to realize we're law-abiding citizens. And so here... 
The one who has been freed or vindicated from the gospel now seeks to vindicate the gospel. He wants to vindicate the reputation of Christian witness and ministry. And that's an important step for the church. Justin Martyr, 100 or 200 years later, would fall in this. He writes his first apology, a letter to the Roman emperor uh, Titus. Uh, There's a persecution going on, and he says, the reason you shouldn't persecute Christians is because Christians are actually the best of citizens. Our our Savior told us to to be submissive, to pray for our leaders, to pay our taxes. You, know, you have this idea that we want to overthrow the government because you heard that our kingdom is, is not of this world. But, but you're getting the whole thing wrong. We, we want to be faithful citizens. And so why did Paul, why does Justin Martyr, why do they take that stand with government authorities? Why should we at times? And the reason that they do this is because when you realize that the gospel has set you free, there's nothing that you want more than for people to see it as freeing as you have. You want to vindicate it. You don't want it to be tarnished or misunderstood. You want people to see it just like you for being as glorious and good and freeing as it really is. And so we recognize that if we're ever called to interact or contend with civil magistrates, we must remember it's never an end unto itself. It's a means to an end. The end is always the furtherance of this gospel. Uh, We don't want to become so consumed with swaying public opinion and getting the government to be our friends, that we actually lose sight of what matters most, and that's actually the ministry of the church. That's why the story ends with Paul and Silas returning to Lydia's house and meeting with the Christian church that's being formed there and encouraging the brothers. That's what matters most to them. And what are they encouraging them with? It's not by rehearsing the news that they've been freed from prison But in rehearsing the greatest news of all, that in Christ Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from hell. In closing, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. This this will be our last thing here. Philippians chapter 1. Years later, we can imagine this interesting cadre of new converts that we found in Acts 16. Lydia... This rich businesswoman and this slave girl, certainly the opposite of Lydia in almost every way. And then this ex-military man, this, this Philippian jailer, and many others now gathering on a Lord's Day uh, morning in someone's home, uh, perhaps even Lydia's home. Uh, and now this, this, this core group, this small church, and years later they receive a letter from their friend, the Apostle Paul. Uh, the man who had so miraculously been sprung free from prison is, yet, is now yet in prison again, this time in Rome. But look at what he writes. Here's where we see what, what matters most to Paul. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really been to serve, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's saying, don't weep for me. You've heard I'm in prison now. I want you to know my imprisonment has been the means for me to convert the whole praetorian guard. People in prison here now have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? It wouldn't be too hard to to imagine that Philippian jailer hearing that in his Eyes welling up with tears. As Paul says, my imprisonment is the means of salvation for those in prison with me. That jailer knew that. 
in a personal way, he could say yes and amen. And God imprisoned some to release others. But notice what Paul's focus is. It's not about his imprisonment. It's about the gospel. He, say, he says, I may be bound, but the gospel can never be bound. His aim is always on the glory and the advance of the gospel, which is the only power to set sinners free. So may that be our aim and our focus as well. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanksgiving for your word to us today. And we thank you for this wonderful story, an exhilarating account of conversions in the early church. We ask that many more conversions would, would take place. Lord, if there are any here today who are bound up and, and chained in the prison house of sin, oppressed with the, the dark spiritual forces that seek to claim our hearts if we do not belong to Christ, pray that they would have taken hold of that key. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'd be saved. Lord, we need all of us, even, even those who have been saved, need to hear that message again and relish its simplicity. So we praise you for the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.